Welcome to the Juniper and Journey podcast with Keziah Ritter and Lindsay Heslop. We're so thrilled that you're here. This is a podcast dedicated to celebrating the strength and stories of women, good, bad, ugly, and beautiful in their own words. We believe in the power of real conversations, honest confessions, and playful nostalgia. You'll get to hear all kinds of perspectives from all kinds of women about all kinds of things. We'll talk about life and motherhood and loss and faith. We'll reminisce about the good old days, first loves, and old flames. This is going to be fun. Things might get a little rowdy, but we can guarantee that it will be meaningful, and we hope each woman's story inspires you towards empathy, compassion, and healing. Okay, let's get started. Deanna Black is here with us today, and uh, we're so excited for you to get to hear from her. Um, I feel like Deanna is the cool aunt that everybody wishes <laughs> oh, they had. Yes. Right? For sure. Yeah. yeah. She's thoughtful and perceptive and excellent company. And um, also a little bit of fun. Oh, so fun. That's yes. the cool aunt part <laughs> yes. for sure. And I always lose time when I'm with Deanna, so we might be here for like four hours. Who knows? Um, <laughs> I would love that. I lose time when I'm with you two girls too. <laughs> but she's disarming and warm and yes, wickedly funny. So because uh, I and I actually know Deanna but from different worlds a little bit. Yeah. Um. So I know Deanna because of my friendship uh, with her daughter, Lacey. Uh, Lacey and I met like six years ago through church. We were both working with high school girls uh, and we became pretty close friends, mostly because Lacey decided that that's how it was going to go, <laughs> Yep. Which, which I'm thankful for. Uh, and I miss her, miss her all the time. But because, you know, Dana from a long so time yeah, ago, almost even a little hard to explain where it makes sense. But basically, you were friends with my uncle and my aunt yeah. originally. As in when you guys were in your early 20s? As in about 30 seconds after I became a Christian. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Your That's uncle cool. and aunt went to the very first church that I went to after I really came wow. to know Jesus. I don't think I knew that specific piece. That's really so cool. So I've known of you almost since the womb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and probably met when I was... Tiny. Three, yeah, four, little. something like that. Yeah, uh -huh. so... We go way back. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Awesome. So, Deanna, thanks for being here. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's start with what kind of led up to um, the season where you meet your husband, Jeff. <laughs> Tell us, like, what brought you <laughs> to that yeah. season? It's, we were pioneers. It was 1999 <laughs> and we met online. I didn't know that. Yes, That's I did. I, hope, I was hoping we were going to talk about this. <laughs> yes, it's awesome. We did meet online. I learned a long time ago that I just need to embrace the fact that I am 100% a geek. <laughs> There's, it's, you can kind of flip that around into something cool if you just embrace it all full, all in. Yeah. All in. And so for years and years and years, I played this crossword puzzle game online every single day, ritually. And they started having banner ads across the top way back when that started to be a thing, like <laughs> to keep your website going. So on my little Garfield's game website, they had a banner site for Udate, which was a old, old, old dating website. And I'd had a friend whose boyfriend had gotten himself kind of in trouble by going on those when he's supposed to be dating my friend. Oh, shoot. So I'm like, oh, this is how he got himself in trouble. Let's scandalous. see what this is about, click. <laughs> and I go all the way to the end answering all their little questions. And I'm like, I'm not paying any money for this. But women were free. And I was like 37 years old. And I thought, well, why not? <laughs> so I went all the way to the end of it. Only wound up corresponding with a couple of people because you didn't like, I was a school teacher. I'm not going to tell him my real name or anything. So <laughs> I had this total fake AOL yes, email Yes, you had like a fake name? Oh, heck yeah. Oh, heck yeah. And no, I didn't tell him my real name. Well, That's Dana's hilarious. an unusual name, and I'm a school teacher. I'm like, no, nobody's going to locate me. Yeah. So, yes, so I had this fake name, and this man started emailing me back and forth. And he was really the only one that didn't sound like kind of a creeper because he was talking about being a dad 
of a little girl who played hockey and how competitive hockey took up so much time. And he took um, great pains to talk about how much he loved his daughter. And that was really appealing. Hmm. So we went back and forth like that for about four months before he finally got up the courage to meet, ask if we wanted to meet in person. We hadn't even talked on the phone. So I said, okay. And then I told him my real first name. <laughs> what did even, he think four about months that? Later, I love four that. months later, he was okay with it because okay. I was like, oh. I'm being careful. Yeah. Yeah. And his last name's Block. And I thought, that is just a, that is a weird name. Who's, who's name? <laughs> You're like, your name's fake too. <laughs> I know. Like, oh. I, yeah. I'm like, all righty then. But so we met at the highly romantic Outback Steakhouse because. Yes. It's still one up on yeah. yeah. <laughs> because uh, I drove up here, up north in the northern part of the metro area, because he had the hockey daughter and was super busy. And I don't know, after that first date, we could kind of just tell. Like, after mm-hmm. that date, he wanted to see me the next day because I was car shopping. And he said he'd pretend to be my boyfriend to make sure I didn't get taken advantage of. Sweet and I moved. Yeah. I know. Oh, my god. And I called him out on that, like, later on, and I said, you were just trying it on for size. Yeah. I just want to see if it fit, and you were, like, I really into that. it. Yeah. That's amazing. So that's how we met. I love yeah, it. I love that. Yeah. So then how you guys started dating and then got married, what's the timeline Let's see, on that? About a year and... Not quite a year and a half later. Awesome. We got engaged a little more than a year after that. One of the things I loved about him was that early on, he didn't want to have Lacey be a big part of our relationship. And he was very afraid to tell me that like it was going to scare me off. And Mm -hmm. it actually did exactly the opposite because it showed me that he really had his priorities set correctly. Yeah, because how old was Lacey at the time? Lacey was 10. Yeah. Yeah, she had just turned 10. So I only saw her once for the first eight months, maybe nine months. Mm. And that was because she gave him no end of, like, she would just give him no peace about who is this new person that you're dating. So we went out one time on New Year's Day for breakfast, or for dinner, excuse me, to satisfy her curiosity. (laughs) And then she was satisfied and that was it. Oh, she's like, okay, yep, better. Fine. Yep, she just needed a face, just needed to know. <laughs> and then it wasn't until he and I were pretty sure we were moving toward marriage that we started slowly kind of putting her into the things that we were doing. Yeah. So, well, tell us about that. What, you know, so you, you get married mm-hmm. and now not only are you married and a wife, but now you're also a stepmom to this, you know, teenager basically yeah so tell us about just navigating that you know what was that like for you what was that like for you and jeff Mm -hmm. jeff and i talked about that quite a bit before we got married because when you marry someone with children you marry a family you don't just marry a a a man or a woman Mm -hmm. and you have to go in knowing that that's what you're doing. At the same time, I was looking for kind of something to hang my hat on because you can't just show up in a child's life, even if you are married to her father and expect to have that kind of intimate relationship that a mother and a daughter have out of the gate. So honestly, my first biggest concern with having a daughter was, oh, crap, I have to learn how to cook something that will nourish a child. (laughs) Because what I had been living on was not going to cut it. So we later joked as a little family of three about the Campbell's soup days, where it was cream of whatever mixed with whatever over what kind of noodles. That was like phase one. And then phase two was get a big girl cookbook and start fiddling and trying with things until we got to a point that like, I could actually put a meal on the table that was moderately nutritious and sort of tasty. I love that. That's any kid's dream. I know. Oh, my God. So that was my very first practical concern. In the bigger scheme of things, I really kind of went to to God. I go to the Bible. This is where I anchor myself in anything that matters. And 
I couldn't find specific lists of here's how you be a good biblical stepmom, one, two, three, four, five. Because <laughs> if you're a stepmom, already things have not gone to plan A. Mm. There's um, things that tag along with that mm-hmm. that are always going to present challenges that are different from a not blended family, different from a bio family. So for one of the few times in my life where I feel like I actually got a very concrete, specific answer to, God, I don't know how to be a good stepmom, and I really want to be. And I feel like, not that um, audible voice stuff, I think that's a little. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like God really pointed me towards, okay, these principles are going to be helpful for Lacey as a human being. She needs to learn to honor her father and mother, help her figure out what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And even before that, show her how to love her, that you love her dad and give her an example of what a godly good marriage can be. And that gets you a long way, honestly. (laughs) It really does. And then through doing that, time passes and the more shared experience in life you have, we came to... You know, I kind of, Lisa and I fell in love in our own little way. Right. Yeah. Through that. Yeah. And I have this funny memory of her at that age. I bet she wasn't even 13 or something, but we went to lunch or something and she was making, she was like working and making balloon animals. <gasps> oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yes. Oh, I totally remember that. We went to lunch and she was there, mm-hmm. but she was like going around to all the tables and making people balloon animals, right? She, when I married Jeff, right across the street was one of her best friends from a private school that she'd gone to for a little while, Brandon. So the two of them hung out for the first summer we were married where I was like, hi, I have a kid for the summer. What am I going to do? <laughs> so we got Waterworld passes and Brandon was over all the time and they taught themselves how to make balloon animals. And then he was a little bit more of an entrepreneur than she was. So they went to <laughs> Ruby Tuesdays, Yes, I think. it was Ruby Tuesdays. And they went in and said, hey, and they had their faces all made up like clowns and they had these hats and they would go around to tables. Ruby Tuesdays paid them 50 bucks. What? Plus tips that they got. She's 14 and they'd go work for like two hours and make $100. And I thought, this is your first job. Yep. My first job was like babysitting for a quarter an yeah. hour. And this is what... Yeah, she was making those blue Yeah, that's like my first memory of her was going and, I mean, maybe even the first time meeting her. She was 13 or 14 then. Yeah. Because that was either the first or second summer we were. I love that story. Yeah, making us balloon animals at our (laughs) table. Uh Uh-huh. So funny. That's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, we'd been friends for a couple years now, and I can vividly remember um, where I was what I was doing, like, I remember everything about the phone call um, that I got when Lacey first called to tell me that she had cancer. Tell us about just for you, you know, hearing that original diagnosis, her being not even 30 and, and diagnosed with cancer. That was a knock your knees out from under you kind of time. Um, it was summer of 2017, and she had just started playing hockey again. She was in grad school at Denver Seminary to be a mental health therapist and had started playing hockey again because she felt like she had been eating too much while she just sat at grad school and <laughs> packing on a little too much weight. And she was like, I'm going to get out and start doing things. I'm going to play hockey because she loved that as a kid. But she started getting uh, – her back started really bothering her, really bugging her. And we just wrote it off to, you know, girl, you just can't get back on the ice after like five years. And of course your back's going to hurt. Of course your leg's going to hurt. Oh, that's a really nasty bruise. And it was kind of an increase of really what felt odd and random at the time, symptoms that escalated until about the middle or late July. And then I remember... There were times where she could barely get off the floor because her back was hurting so badly. So we'd gotten her to 
a doctor. They'd tried muscle relaxants. They'd tried various and sundry things. We'd taken her to a physical therapist to try and work out some of the knots in her back. She was doing marginally better. Um, and so I remember telling her that Friday, <laughs> I said, sweetie, the PT told you go, you know, keep moving. Cause that'll start stretching out some of the muscles and stuff. I said, so go home. You've been miserable all week. I said, you're doing a little bit better. See if you can go home, move around. You haven't seen any of your friends for like a week. Go see if you can have a good weekend. And she said to me, well, I looked myself up on WebMD and either I have, I'm in menopause or I've got leukemia. And I lovingly and kindly said to her, you don't have leukemia. Go home and have a weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Well, she called in the middle of the night um, between Saturday or Sunday and Monday, like at 4.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, she texted me. D, I'm laying in the bathtub. I can't move. I'm in so much pain. I don't know what to do. And so I, I haven't slept all night. And so I look at the text and I look at the clock and I think, oh, it, this was like 30 minutes ago. What if she fell asleep? And I call and I wake her up and she hasn't slept all night. And then 10 seconds later, another text came through. Mm. So I woke up Jeff. I called her on the phone and I said, Look, we're going to get dressed. We're going to come down. We're just going to go plop ourselves at a doctor until we figure this out because this is crazy. So we went to an urgent care. They did some blood work and whisked her away to a hospital where they were going to for sure diagnose her with some random thing that wasn't cancer. Although in hindsight, she and I talked and we're like, yeah, that guy knew exactly. He was just being kind to us to get us to a... Oh, Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can't responsibly he couldn't have diagnosed it of with course. just blood work, but it doesn't look like that when things are, right. there's leukemia. And then there's one really odd, I can't remember what organ it was, pancreatic, something mm. or another. So by this was Sunday, by Tuesday morning, we were at the, at Pres St. Luke's with the Colorado blood cancer Institute. And she was plugged into chemo. Um, the, the first night we were at a different hospital and the hematologist came in that night and said, well, the first thing we want to do is rule out leukemia. So they were going to do a bone marrow biopsy to see what that looked like. If there wound up being myeloblasts, which are immature blood cells, it means something is way off and you've got a cancerous situation. So he said he was going to get that done and he would let us know before he left for the day. Well, the clock is ticking and it's getting close to six o'clock and we haven't heard anything. And I said, babe, I think he's going to um, not get back to us tonight, even though he said he would, because it's getting close to six. I said, your dad and I will go home. I'll grab some clothes. I'll come back down. I'll sleep with you. So we got in the car, got halfway home and she called because the hematologist had called her and said, it's leukemia. We have to find out what type it is. And I held it together and then hung up the phone and ugly cried the whole way home. And so did Jeff. And then got it together again, came back down to the hospital, sat with her through the night, and then in the morning is when they schlepped us off to PSL. I don't know that we even called anybody that night. We may have, but it was just so raw and so um, we just needed to sit a minute with how and let it kind of wash over us that this was going to, everything in our life just turned on a dime. Nothing that we had planned for the next day or the next two years was going to happen. It was all going to change, and we didn't know how. We didn't know um what that was going to look like. Lacey never set foot in her apartment again, ever. I mean, two days later, all her stuff is moved out and at our house. It just, she had dirty dishes in the sink, literally. Because she, well, she was a little bit of a slob. And <laughs> and she hurt too bad, legit, to wash them. Yeah. So that was, that was a hard night. That was a hard night. Um, 
What was she like in those first couple days? She was still pretty blinded by the pain Mm. because her back pain was so bad that she was hearing the words and could kind of intellectually process the gravity of them, but didn't have a lot of reserve because she was in so much pain. She didn't really, we didn't have quality talks necessarily around that until she was not hurting so bad physically. And her doctors were amazing. Mm. Amazing. And looking back on it now, I can't imagine how many times they have to sit and give that same talk and explain to another group of brand new people who are just in the most shell-shocked place they've ever been in their lives, kindly, compassionately, and slowly what's going on in their world and how they have to deal with so many different temperaments and personalities of people that need it presented in different ways. Mm. Cause like Jeff could not handle the granular details in the beginning. All he was concerned about is, are you going to keep my little girl safe tonight? Can I go home? Is she going to be safe? And I wanted like to have already graduated med school. So I understood what they were saying. <laughs> so we were a little different in that. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Huh. My notes in the beginning, they made fun of me because I had my little iPad there with my keyboard and I'd clickety-clack away while they were talking and I'm looking at them and typing. And I'm like, how did you spell that? <laughs> and, oh, yeah. man. But, and then this journey begins really, like you said, the next you know, year at least is, mm-hmm. you know, chemo and transfusions and, uh, you know, stem cell transplant and twice. twice. And so Lacey always seemed so optimistic, at least in our time together, mm-hmm. that this was something that she decided pretty quickly that she was going to fight, that she was going to survive, Um, that it was wild to be not even 30 and to have leukemia, but that meant she's like, I think, I feel like I can do this. I'm going to show up for this. Did you have, did you carry the same optimism or were there moments, especially in that first year going this, this feels like a death sentence, or is this something that we can come out on the other side of? Probably both. Uh, at first, it was 100% a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Jeff and I were just reeling. And I didn't even know really how to process that. I just sort of let it sit like a pit in my stomach and just got up the next day and did the next thing and didn't pull back to look at it very much. Um, and I reached out to my near and dear people that the people I trust with my heart and I talked to them and, and God works some good stuff out. Like I have a good friend who lost a son to cancer. Like she was one of the first people that I called and I, all I really needed to hear from her was I called her and I'm like, Shannon, can I do this? Do I have what it takes to do this? And to just hear her go, you can do this. It's, you know, you're not where we are yet, but you, yes, you you can do this. Um, That meant a ton. And it's like every person that was close to us had some little bit of love to give us that was just what we needed like that. And they were all different little bits but you put them all together and it really held us. And Lacey had the same thing. Um, And there was overlap in that. Um, But she had, I mean, they, (laughs) they said, do you want a chaplain? And she's like, no, I got my own because she's in seminary. (laughs) So (laughs) her chaplains brought beer up to the, oncology floor and I had to be like no no you they can't that's not okay 
Um, a nice try. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take that home though. Yeah, yeah. thanks. We'll save that for later. Um, so yeah, it felt very much like a death sentence in the beginning, which just sent you to the pits. And then you started talking to the doctors and realized, and this is true, there are people who survive her disease. It's a beast. And the majority statistically don't survive. I don't know that Lacey rode those waves as dramatically necessarily as I did. Uh, partly because that's more her temperament and my temperament. I tend to, and she was more even keel and um, even keel. Lacey, am I really? <laughs> did I just say that? But that's what I think about this. She was. Which was so really startling. that had to be God. Yeah, it we really did, did talk she and I in the beginning about okay, once things settled enough for us to say, let's just pause for a day and just say, God, what are you what are what are you telling me here? What give me something? And we got really different things. And the thing she kept getting that she felt like he was whispering to her was, "Do you trust me?" And she's like, "If I just keep saying yes to that, then I feel like I'm okay." And mine was more, I would lay in bed at night and I would come up with 8 million different ways that this could go and all but like two of them were appallingly bad. And finally, after I just had worn myself out on a spiral, I kind of just physically really exhaled and then sat there for a minute and said to myself, all right, out of all of those paths, which one of those do you think you're going to walk without Jesus? And none of them. So, okay. So I don't necessarily need to know the path because that's not going to happen. But I know um, that whatever the end is, I know who's going to be waiting there for me to pick me up, dust me off, send me out with things to do again. So... And Jeff and I talked really early, like within the first couple of days while she was in the hospital, we sat down and talked because when the docs made it clear what our lives were going to look like for the next couple of years, huh, we had a lot of practical things to decide. We had to get all her physical stuff home. We had to decide, are you going to try to get a job? Because he was on a planned break from jobs. And then we, more importantly, had to sit and look each other in the eyes and go, all right, statistically, most people don't survive this. Statistically, most marriages go up in flames. So we don't have any control personally over whether what, the course of Lacey's disease, but we can commit right now, like looking each other in the eyes, we are not going to let this take down our marriage or take down us. Um this if if we feel ourselves pulling apart we've got to call ourselves on it and we've got to come back together because it's too easy through lack of attention to let that happen too and if if we wound up losing our daughter and splitting up that's just no we were we were going to that's where we were drawing the line <laughs> like no no we we have power over that and we're going to use it we're not going to um we're going to fight. Yeah. So that's the next piece that I'm curious to hear you talk about is you're not only navigating this as, as a mom and a wife and a woman, but also now Lacey as an adult has moved back in with you guys. And you also now take up the role of caretaker, mm -hmm. which is, is so intense. And I think there's a lot to that, that if you're not living it, you can't quite grasp. So mm -hmm. I'd love to just hear about how that changes your relationship with Lacey now that you're your caretaker. And, and again, I would love to hear too, what were some of those things that you and Jeff, what are the things that you did that did help you and your marriage survive this? Okay. Um, Caring for Lacey wasn't as hard as I think a lot of people have with caretaking because she was an adult. And not only was she an adult, but she was a very opinionated, outspoken adult. <laughs> so um, 
I am perfectly capable of driving myself to my clinic appointment. Thank you very much. (laughs) And yes, I know you're capable of giving me my heparin, but I can also do it myself. And, and, but she was realistic with that too. I mean, she would tell me to back off when I needed to back off. She'd tell her dad to back off when he needed to back off because she was still a woman, like not a little girl. And that's, Oh, I felt badly for her in that. I wish we could have had like a separate guest house or something where she still could have had a little bit more of a life. But she was also super gracious about it because like when you guys had come over, she'd, we didn't need to do the mom and dad go in the basement with the teenagers <laughs> upstairs kind of thing. She would include Jeff and me. and We all got to hang out. Exactly. We all did get to hang out. And she didn't really mind that. She really didn't mind that too much and she was like i said she was also realistic about it too because she let me come most of the time completely do her medication because holy crow they come home with like six stapled sheets of all the different kinds of meds and it's insane and down to the little minutia like this one you can't take with a grapefruit and you got to take this one before a meal and this one after a meal and this one three times a day and this one five times a day and Whoa. I mean, you both knew Lacey well enough to know that that was not in her <laughs> wheelhouse. And I still have color-coded med charts with clip art, thank you very much, <laughs> where I would keep track of every all of her medication so she knew, yeah, I don't want to do that. You can just give me a cup of pills and I'll swallow. <laughs> and she could trust that I would do th- that kind of stuff. Um, she also was really good about um, maintaining as much as she could her own life. The hardest thing, I think, was um, having to go back to sort of sleeping light and wondering if there's a sound in the night, what's, what is that? Mm. I mean, you kind of get over that a little and you haven't had that for a while because it really could be bad. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that Jeff and I did too, which kind of overlaps with the caretaking with Lacey is slowly over time, I realized I just had to let go of almost all of the parts of the life that I had before that. Like I had this fantasy, like I could still keep, taking care of her and volunteering at the school I was at and what was I thinking and that I could still go out to dinner with friends fairly regularly. No, not really. And the more I turned my eyes towards this is what my job is, is taking care of Lacey, the easier it got because I could tune out like the real world and I didn't have to look longingly over my shoulder at people that were going on vacation and doing normal life things. And I could just sort of be in my space. And it's like the three of us and the hospital staff sort of created this bubble of this is where we live now. These are our people. This is our social life. And we sort of retreated into that and just sort of let people in sporadically to that. But even if I'd go out with friends or something, you never, you never let it, you never put it down entirely. Mm -hmm. It was always there and you never go out without your cell phone kind of on your lap so you could see a text or, There was one time we were, after she relapsed after her first stem cell transplant. And I think that was the hardest for me was that second relapse because I felt like we'd failed somehow. And the like part of me knew we hadn't failed. But a, a mutual friend who's a medical person came and said, all right, I know I've seen this happen. Now is the time where you need to start looking other places and getting second opinions and checking into uh, clinical trials and and all that. And so I freaked out and I started, you know, 
calling every flipping cancer hospital in the country and trying to find other places I could take her, other things I could do, and finally reached just some amazing people who I think just took pity on this frantic woman who was kind of, who was calling, (laughs) trying to name drop, which I hate. I just hate. It was like everything about that was so out of type for me, but I'm like, I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this. And basically he said, okay, with this profile, this would be the course of treatment. I would first look at it. And it was identical to what her docs had come up with. And, Mm -hmm. but so I hadn't really found anything new. And so I went to the her doctors and I basically said, Hey, I'm so sorry I cheated on you. I've been looking at other <laughs> and they're like, It's okay. We look around and we call and we do the same things too. And um not long after that we Lacey and I were driving to the clinic and I remember I was a mess. And she, who's in school to be a mental health therapist, I used to hate it when she'd try to therapize me. <laughs> but I'm like, Yeah, I know what you're doing. Don't try and pull that crap on me. But she she said, okay, what's going on? And I, I just lost it. And I'm like, what if you die because I wasn't I didn't find the right hospital or I didn't find the right place to call and I I there's a clinical trial out there and I didn't find it and you're already dead. And then I find that trial and then there's something that we could have done that's out in the world somewhere and we don't know where it is and we can't find it and what and she's like, Oh, for the love of God, just stop. She said, take a breath. And she goes, D, if I die, I'm going to die because I got cancer. I'm not going to die because you didn't do something. So when that's your patient, caretaking is a little easier. I mean, that doesn't feel like the right word, but it's not as, it's a little lighter maybe than it could. Yeah, you carry... You carry the responsibility differently. Yes. Because maybe you're not assuming stuff that, like Lacey so eloquently put it, it's not going to be on you. Yeah. And so it changes how you operate in that role. Right. Mm -hmm. And she was very clear-minded about that. None of us ever did the why thing. Um. We we just didn't. We knew it wasn't a punishment. We knew God better than that. We knew this is just life in a world that's full of sin and crap. (laughs) (laughs) So, Just speaking personally, the why piece got harder the second time around. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she's in remission. We're celebrating. It's, you know, that she'll get to return to school. She'll get to keep moving forward with this dream. And it's not even a year or like mm-hmm. almost the timing was so bizarre in that too, right? That it was yeah. like almost exactly a year from her original diagnosis that it's, it's back. It's in her blood again. It's not looking good. And for me, the why that second time felt harder to fight um, now that she's relapsed, which again means the statistics are worse. You start hearing all of this information that feels pretty dooming. Um, so what happens now? I think if I'm honest, all three of us probably knew on our second relapse that eventually this was going to be what killed her that she was not going to survive this. Um, But not a hundred percent. Like it's almost impossible to completely let go of hope. I mean, you just, so even with the second transplant for this one, I really didn't want to know all the details. I didn't want to know the odds of this being curative. They were bad enough the first time around. This was not going to be better. So we just sort of plowed ahead with doing what they were telling us to do. 
uh, we'd figured some stuff out medically, I think, that made us realize her particular flavor of leukemia is not easy to stamp out entirely. And odds were pretty darn good that it was going to be back. Despite that, she still tried to take one class that last semester. <laughs> um, literally from a hospital bed where she's plugged into somebody else's stem cells and spiking fevers of like 107. And she's trying to take, what was it, like New Testament theology or something. You wound up taking New Testament <laughs> Pretty much theology. I did. Because I was like, all right, I'll do all the reading and then I'll just tell you the important parts. And she's sweating and all this and I've got the book and I'm like, we could study a little bit. And she's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. It was a very good class. But she did glean one thing from that because they did talk about your personal eschatology was like your personal view of death and the afterlife. And that did bring her some comfort <laughs> in that last Bible college class. Um, she never got quite the bounce back on the second one. It did buy us some time with her. and But that was from end of October yeah, like her second transplant was on Halloween until, and it was only until February before it was back. And that was when they told her it was terminal. Um, yeah, so it was just from the first diagnosis to the treatment plan, to the second, to the relapse, to the second treatment plan, to the second relapse, it was all over the map. And like I said before, we sort of put ourselves in this little bubble. The sicker Lacey got, the smaller our bubble got <laughs> until it was just kind of Jeff and Lacey and me and once in a while another person or two. And by that point, honestly, I was always a little antsy and anxious and not settled or content if I wasn't within earshot of lace like I, I just couldn't so which was hard on her because she still needed some independence and I would let her have as much as possible but it was an anxiety filled time because I just wanted her to be close um and honestly, even though she wanted some independence and such, when it was really bad, she wanted me close to. Yeah, but it's it didn't probably last. just like this weird raw thing, it, or like even just part of grief. I looked that up because I I lost it like. Just just that deep gut sadness. I don't know how I'm going to get through this bawling stuff. So many more times in those two years where she was still here and and so sick and getting sicker than I have since she died. Hmm. It's like she... Um, we had time knowing what was coming to talk and prepare and that makes a huge difference it really does make a huge difference she got me a list of therapists that i was supposed to be calling to because <laughs> because for you yeah <laughs> why aren't you already in therapy how are you going to get through this all on your own and that's the most lazy ever <laughs> to leave you a list and go you're going to need this. Yeah. I talked to my therapist, and here's a couple of people she yeah. thinks would be great with you. Why don't you give them a call? Um, and she made us... She, like in the hospital, the last time when her doc came in and told her she wasn't leaving the hospital because she was not... She really didn't get that. Everybody got that except Lacey. 
And when he finally made it clear to her that this is it, this, this, you're not going home from this one. And when we were alone and she just lost it, one of the first things she sobbed was, tell me you and dad are going to be okay. You are going to be okay, right? I'm like, we're going to be okay and you can do this. Um, so she left us. She took care of us, you know, in a little bit of a bitchy way sometimes. But That's <laughs> <laughs> just true. That's very true. And she, because she was not a fan, she's like, don't you dare go up at my memorial and say my smile lit up a room because, you know, the only way I lit up a room is with a blowtorch coming through the door. Um, <laughs> she's like, that's crap. And everyone there will know it if they know me at all. Um but she took care of us up until she was couldn't anymore. So, what were those last few days like? Lacey made this video, like an art project with this guy, and she said when she and clearly he had asked her about what, what she thought physical death was going to be like, and she said, she goes, I know it seems like a just a blink, like a one moment to the next. She said, but, and I'm paraphrasing, I think it's going to be more of a transition because people see things. And she said, everything good is a transition, good or bad. And she was hoping for a really solid transition, least scary way possible. And I could feel looking back that transition start to happen because the biology of it is that you're, your blood isn't making enough oxygen, so things start to fail, and that even affects your thinking and your your um, cognition. Right. And she fought like crazy to hang on to that for as long as she possibly could because she wanted – she knew she was dying, but until she was – the whole time she was here, she still wanted to be her. So I think she did less – pain med maybe than she should have to control some of that. So she was hurting in the last few days, but she also loved still having people marching through the room all the time. She decided, all right, I'm stuck in this hospital room. So she'd do a survey every day of a just, pole. yeah, a poll <laughs> every day of ridiculous things like Taylor Swift's new <laughs> not the newest, clearly, but the one before right. it had just come out. So the first one was, what's the best song? And then she would ridicule anyone who disagreed with her. And then, <laughs> what's the best drink to have on a first date? And and just do polls like that with mm-hmm. everyone who would come in through the room. And that kind of kept her going. She still made plans. So up until the end, she was still her. Yeah. And it wasn't long after that that she was unconscious and that was... That was that. Um, but she remained herself. And she died on the Friday. She thought saw her therapist for the last time on Tuesday because she said, I'm going to keep working on myself as long as I'm still here. I mean, that's four days <laughs> before. So it was really, except for the ending of, that last hospital stay, it was a lot like the other ones had been. A lot of laughing and happy and storytelling and friends. and Now that she's not here, you talk about this bubble. How do you start taking steps back out of that bubble like it's your life for mm-hmm. two years and even the couple times we've gotten together like how do you start shifting out of this reality into a whole new one that she's not in Slowly, I guess, we probably didn't do much of anything to crack that bubble until 
for a good couple of months, we just sort of stayed in it. Like we didn't even plant. It was the first of September. We had our memorial the end of October because that was about as soon as we could probably handle it. <laughs> um, God is so huge, and he got bigger throughout this uh, journey that we were on. And I have one of my very, very, very favorite Bible teachers of all time who ironically had a son who died. He said when things get so cloudy and so murky and so confusing that you just don't know what to do. And that's really where we were when we went home. We're like, this has been what we've, our life has been. I don't know how to get up tomorrow morning. Um, he said, just drill back until you land on something that you know is truth, even if it's a tiny, tiny, tiny little thing. And for a long time, um, the thing that I would drill back to is God is real. And I just sit in that space of God's real until I could add something to that that felt substantial. Um, and through Lacey getting sick and, and dying, I think I can honestly drill back to God's real and he's good. Um, and that sounds super simple, but it is genu genuinely earth-shifting. Because if you're solid in that, there's very little that has a huge, long-lasting control or power over you, even grief. Um, so I think slowly. I think we I drilled back to that spot of God's real, God's good, just sit here a minute. Um, let people come and love on you. And just be until something presents itself. And uh, I got an email from the assistant principal of the school that I'd volunteered at not long after Lacey died that said, hey, so we have a job. I hope this isn't awkward, but we're so sorry to hear about Lacey, but like in a couple weeks, could you maybe come back? And so I had somewhere to get up and go to, and that was good. Um, we had a lot of family around us. That was good. Jeff had just gotten a new job. That gave him somewhere to be and a purpose. And I think we just sort of clicked autopilot and started doing those things next. Like, okay, we've had a couple months. Do all the initial things you have to do, the busyness of planning that, and then move into autopilot, get up, do things that feel like productive, but kind of in an awkward checking off the list kind of way. And then starts to creep in some things that are from the past, like, hey, I can go to dinner with somebody and I can talk to them. And, um, and slowly it's, it's opening up. It's, I can't imagine a day where I don't spend huge chunks of it thinking about Lacey. It might happen in the future. I can't imagine it right now, but it could happen. But I also have things to do and things that feel good and right to be about doing. And I'm just sort of in a place of waiting for that next all right, here's where I'm going to point you. I know he's going to do it. I know he's going to point me in a new direction. And I'm okay waiting until that's a little clearer. <laughs> <clears throat> I remember something you said to me in, I mean, it was, it was a, a week or two after she had died. We were playing in her funeral and, um, I remember you said to me, again, I just, I was dealing with grief. You and Jeff were dealing with grief and just 
watching you and Jeff walk through this, I think I was just talking, I just, just saying to you, like, Dan, I don't know how you're doing this. <laughs> like, I just don't, I don't know how you're on two feet in front of me right now. And I remember you said to me, you're like, I can't imagine, I can't imagine how somebody survives this if you haven't already figured out that God is good yeah, and that he's in control. And I, you said it a lot to me, I think in those couple weeks after she died, but that has just stuck with me. And I think it always will. Um, but like, how did you arrive there? How did you arrive at this place where you could know, even as your daughter battles leukemia and it takes her life, how did you land on God is good and he is in control? Honestly, honestly, I don't think I get much credit for that at all. It is not in my nature. I really lean more towards glass half empty and I used to look in envy with all my friends who would be like, God loves me so much and he's so amazing. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's just the long haul of um, hanging out with him. And it's not a magical thing. It's reading his word talking to him, studying it, talking to people who have read his word and understand it better than I do and listening to them and realizing you can lean into Jesus and, and survive big things. Um, and I think the only way you get there is just being with him over time and then you it's, you, you don't do it he does it and then you look back and realize he did it and then you're grateful mm. <laughs> um it's not a i am not a fan of formulas at all and a lot of people have said i don't think i could do what you do or i don't understand how you could do that which honestly you shouldn't you're really young you shouldn't that's terrible. This is terrible stuff. Nobody should have to really understand. But if something this heavy or even heavier landed on either one of you, you wouldn't know how to do it either any more than we did. But the thing that's the same is the very same God who knows you would be right next to you to walk you through it on your path and give you every single thing that you need. So it's really not so much me doing anything, and it's more about God hanging in and not ever stopping. So you talked about this moment that you had with Jeff, um, where you guys looked at each other and said, we are not going to lose us. Have you had to come back to that moment? Yes. But I think it was really important that we had it early on. Because coming back to it, it's bolstering up something we already committed to. And we're not trying to build it a commitment like that in the middle of chaos. Mm -hmm. That is better it's easier to do that like when things would get rough and we'd be like wait a minute we we're just going to sit down and we're going to hash this out who's going to do what you know i'm getting irritated with you i feel like i'm carrying too much of the load you feel like you're carrying too much of the load how are we going to work this out because we already had established we're going to work this out right <laughs> um Happily, we also already had a therapist, the two of us. Ironically, because Lacey had boomeranged back home when she was younger, like after college with no money. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to a therapist because I want to know what to do with this woman who's living in our house. <laughs> and so we went together and he listened to our stuff. He goes, oh, that must be tough with Lacey. Let's talk about you guys and how you talk to each other and communicating. 
<laughs> so we, you know, we already had that set up. But I think the biggest deal, honestly, was that we had talked about it early. And because it was revisiting a conversation, not starting it in the middle of that, that was wiser. Mm-hmm. Are there layers to Jeff that you've experienced since this has happened that you love deeper? He was Lacey's second stem cell donor. Mm -hmm. And that is a pretty rigorous process. And it involved all of the things that he fears the most, honestly. Needles, sickness, um, physical pain. And he went through that without a out of complaint, which you know, that's a deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and on this side of it, we were just talking about this last night. I feel like we've come out of it more tender and kind with each other. And I feel like we see more clearly together, Jeff, too, what actually matters. If you were to ask him, like some of the things that God showed him through this are very different from me because he came into it as a different person and he's just different from my, who I am. And what he learned was what it really means to be cared for by other people outside your own immediate family and what it means to care for other people. I don't think he'd ever really, I know he had never experienced that in his life. And so to watch him feel that, like feel real love from other men that he knew and be able to accept it was really awesome. Because I don't think, I know he had never really experienced that from a group of men around him. How do you feel like it's changed you? I feel like it's more in the forefront of my mind to try to be more authentic. And I feel like that comes straight from Lacey. Because as you know, she would not suffer um, masks. She would call you out on your crap all the time. And I feel like I'm trying to live in that place more deliberately. Um, I don't know so much to honor her, but to acknowledge that in that little bit she was right, (laughs) to be in a more honest place with people. Um, And I feel like it's shown me that God can really handle all of the things that have the potential to terrify you. Like my dream when I was a little girl, I wanted to go up and like give birth to my own baseball team. I wanted to have a ton of kids, and that's not the way it worked out. And I grieved that for a long time, and God has genuinely healed that. And I didn't get married until I was almost 40, and I really wanted to be married before that. God healed that. And I've had this major loss, and God's healing that. And so it's made God bigger. Um And I don't know if I can quantify how that is changing me, but it definitely is. So you talked about that you're now in this kind of <laughs> waiting, waiting for God to tell you what the next thing might be, what your next move is. So now, what is the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> I thought about that last night and the honest to God truth, what gets me out of bed this morning, every morning is that we have two Jack Russell Terriers yes. <laughs> and they will not tolerate my staying in bed when it is the hour for them to be fed. <laughs> Little monsters. Oh, totally. They sleep at the foot of the bed. You open the crates and they are up on the bed instantly, <laughs> instantly. Yeah. And, and, Really, they're, it's like out of the 
that kids book where the wild things are. The wild rumpus begins around 6 a.m. at my house, <laughs> and I can either be up for it or I can be torn apart by it. So I choose to get up and out of bed because <laughs> they need to be fed. They must be doted on. That, and I do love, I'm working, helping with an online school. That's amazing. Yeah. So. And what keeps you up at night? I don't know. The truth is, honestly, nothing much keeps me up at night anymore. All the things that used to keep me up at night, a lot of them have already happened, and God's shown up. Dana, thank you so much for um, just talking about Lacey with us and being so honest and vulnerable and funny like you always are. I love you girls. We love you. Thank you. I love you women. (laughs) Lacey did not like the girls. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Juniper and Journey podcast. If you heard something that resonated with you or that you have questions about, we would love to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram at Juniper and Journey and slide into our DMs. It would be our treat and total privilege to chat with you. We all have a story. If you'd be interested in sharing yours here on the podcast, please reach out. Bye for now. Cheers. Cheers.